Good morning, Boker Tov, and Chodesh Tov, a good Chodesh to all. It should be a month filled with blessing and health and happiness and success and peace and only good things. Our Parsha series is generously sponsored by our dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of David Ben Menachem Manish of David Grossman. A big thank you to them. This morning's share is also sponsored by Robin Russell on the merit of Shavuos. May Hashem help the Jewish people spread light. And by the Summers family in loving memory of Hadassah's father, Moshe Ben Salam on his Shloshim. May his Neshama have an Aliyah. Thank you to all of our generous sponsors. Also, I want to continue to remind those who have not yet signed up for our one-in-one campaign. Dollar a day of giving, Staka, BRS are not recipients, and a minute a day of learning. There have been beautiful Divrei Torah coming from around the world. One minute a day posted in a WhatsApp group. One dollar a day in the merit of Esti Moskowitz, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar Moskowitz's young daughter who's in need of a Rafur Shlema. We're doing all that we can. Everyone's always saying, what can we do for the Moskowitzes? What can we do for Esti? A dollar a day you could do. A minute a day of learning you can do. You can sign up easily, brsonline.org slash the number one, A-N-D, number one. brsonline.org slash number one, A-N-D, one and one. If you're not yet signed up, sign up right now. While we're learning, while we're speaking, while we're discussing the Parsha, that is something that we can all do. Okay, we have the privilege of learning and reading Parsha's Bamid Bar. We're on to a new book. We are up to the fourth book of the Torah. I don't know how that happened. It feels like we just began Bereshis. It was just Simchas Torah. I'm not sure how that happened. Torah tells us here that God spoke to Moshe, and though we've been having an ongoing conversation since the book of Shmos between God and Moshe, nevertheless the Torah feels the need to reorient us and tell us that where did this happen? In the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. There's a very powerful lesson here about Sneas, about the privacy of the conversation that Hashem and Moshe were having. The notion that not everything needs to be exposed and revealed and shared, not everything needs to be posted and linked and promoted and sponsored and hyperlinked and uh, every other tool at our disposal. Ba'omawaid, some things are done uh, in privacy, some things are done quietly. Be'echad l'chodesh ha'sheni, it happened in the first of the second month, Bashan ha'shenis, in the second year, let's say some Eretz Mitzrayim, when they were leaving Egypt. So now that we have this orientation in time and in space, we know when it happened, and we know where it happened, Lemor. Now we get to what God told Moshe to do. Why do we mention where? Why are we mentioning Bamidbar? So there's a Medrash. We've discussed this Medrash previously. The Medrash says, Lama Bamidbar Sinai? Why are we reorienting? Why is it telling us where? We don't know by now they're in the desert. We don't know that they're spending 40 years. Lama bin Bar, we don't know at least that they're there for now. So from here we learn that the Torah was given with three elements. Torah was given and connected to three elements. Ba'ish, fire. Ba'mayim, water. Midbar. And here the reference to the desert. So why these three things? Why was the Torah given? Why do we care about Midbar? The desert, the dry desert, what, what do we care? So says the Medrash, so the Medrash tells us that all three of these things, what they have in common is, they are a free commodity. They're an endless commodity. The desert is 
open, it's barren, it's available to anyone. Water, there are streams, there are rivers, there's rain. Not always, we daven for and need rain. When there's not rain, a lack of rain, of course, it's an enormous crisis and challenge, but there's rain and fire. As long as you can get a fire lit, you can light a fire from a fire from a fire, and fire is an endless resource as long as you can get the original fire lit. What the Medrash is communicating to us is that just as these three are commodities that were given to us, they are endless and they are boundless and they are not finite, so too the Torah Kadosha, our sacred and holy Torah, tap into it, enjoy it, it's available, it is Bechinam. It is a free commodity. There is no supply chain issue when it comes to Torah. And there is no inflation when it comes to the price of Torah. Torah is an endless supply for all who want it, who are thirsty for it, who yearn for it. Torah has no delivery challenge. And in fact, the Shachonach learns from here, it's a very fascinating question, that mahu b'chinam afata b'chinam, just like the Medrash references here, that these three things were free, an endless commodity, Torah was given. There was no charge at Harsinai. There was no turnstile. You didn't need to pay for a ticket. There was no charge to get into Harsinai. So Mahu Bachinam, just like God gave us the Torah and it was free, He graciously and generously wanted to bestow it and make it available to us. Af There should not be charge for Torah classes. Torah personalities should not take compensation, which of course leads to the great question. Uncomfortable if you're on this side of the desk. How is it that rabbis and teachers and educators and scholars and residents get paid? So halachically, we have to come up with this legal loophole, which is that we don't pay them for teaching Torah. You're not allowed to. Just as God taught and shared freely, so too we share freely. It's not ours. It's His. And we are simply the mouthpiece, the conduit. We have to share it for free. So how do we get paid? Same question is asked, by the way, for physicians. We have more than 200 healthcare professionals in our shul. Many more. So, how do they get paid? How do doctors get paid? Mahu b'chinam afata b'chinam. Baruch heals for free, and we're supposed to imitate him, the finest form of flattery, and do it for free as well. How do rabbis and educators get paid? How do doctors get paid? So, halakhically, we come up with this legal loophole called schar batala. We're not, in fact, paying them for teaching Torah or healing the sick. We're paying them for not taking another job. Meaning, I like to think that if I weren't a rabbi, I'd, I'd have a hedge fund, I'd be a real estate investor, I'd be a great lawyer, I'd be a great doctor, I'd make in the closing argument for Johnny Depp, I'd be enormous, I'd be uh, making a ton of money. So I, how do I justify, I have to provide for my family, I have to pay the bills, how do I justify not taking an income from elsewhere? I'm being paid to not take another job. Not being paid to teach Torah, that's not allowed. Mahu Not being paid to teach. The doctor is not being paid to heal. Mahu God healed for free. The doctor has to heal for free. So for what are we getting paid? To not take another job. So that's the Medrash's first point. What these three have in common is they are commodities that when you can access them, they are endless. There is no supply chain. There is no inflation. There is no increased price. And the same is true for the same is true for Torah. Same is true for Torah. So that is the that is the Medrash. It's a beautiful insight also. We saw the desert component. The Medrash ended and says that a person has to osa atzmo kamidbar. What does it mean to turn yourself into a desert? How does one turn themselves into a desert? So it's a beautiful kutzker. 
Tzkatzker says, what does it mean to turn yourself into a desert? What's the quality of a desert? So the Kotzker says, Hefker Kamidbar, he gives two interpretations, he has many more. Im lo yavod ba'atzmo be'eretz ha'midbar, yomaz burav, ke'in shal mishayitein lo, ke'in mishalom esyage al-tor ba'atzmo miyushayu. If a person is stuck in a desert, there is no Hatzalah in the desert. There's no Chaveirim in the desert. There is no one to call out to. 911 doesn't respond in the desert. If a person finds themselves stuck or lost in the desert, whom does it rely upon exclusively their survival? Themselves. Of course, ultimately it's Hashem. One has to submit and surrender. One has to defer to Hashem. Of course it's Hashem. But the person has to put in the effort, take the initiative. The person can't rely on others, delegate to others. person has to realize, The matter lies and rests with me alone. I have to put in the effort. I have to take the initiative. I have to take ownership. I have to have drive. I have to have ambition. If I'm going to make it out of here alive, if I'm going to survive, there is no one coming to rescue me. There is no one coming to rescue me. So what does it require a person to do and to take? Personal responsibility. Personal ownership. Person has to take achrayis. Person has to take achrayis. Says the Kotzker, the same is true when it comes to Torah. Person has to turn themselves into hefker, like a midbar. Person has to realize that when it comes to Torah, we have rebbeim, we have teachers, and we have sources of inspiration. But ultimately, if I'm going to have a growth spurt, if I'm going to break through in my Torah, if I'm going to transform my life to being inspired, then I have to put in the effort. I have to take responsibility. I have to stop outsourcing my religiosity. Stop outsourcing my spirituality. Stop outsourcing and saying, if only I had a good chazan, if only the rabbi gave a good drasha, if only I sat next to somebody inspiring in shul, if only I had a good chevra, if only I... It's easy to point a finger, but when you point a finger, there are three pointing back at you. Acharai, there has to be a sense of acharayas, there has to be a sense of personal responsibility, of personal ownership. So says the Kotzker, that's what it means, hefker kamidbar. If you're going to survive the desert, man up. If you're going to survive the desert, step up. You've got to take responsibility, it's the only way you'll survive. No one's coming to rescue you. Similarly, when it comes to personal growth, when it comes to becoming the best version of ourselves, it has to be personal responsibility, personal ownership. Number two, what is a desert characterized by? When you talk about, when you think about a desert, a desert is a wasteland. A desert is barren. A desert is unplanted. There's nothing growing there. So similarly, a person has to realize when it comes to Torah, I'm a blank slate. There is nothing. There's no preconceived notion. There's no preconceived attitude. I don't have all the answers. I'm not looking to impose or superimpose my values or my vision, the culture of the world I'm living in, and then to redefine and make Torah conform to my world, but rather my world is going to conform to Torah. I'm like a midbar. I'm a barren wasteland. I'm an empty blank slate. Torah, fill me up. Torah, write all over me. Torah, last week's parsha in B'chukosai Telechu. The insight of the Alter Rebbe, the Kutei Sichos, in Bechukosai, Chakika, not simply writing. When you write, you can erase what you wrote. When you engrave, it's there permanently. So the Midbar, we have to be a blank slab, a blank slate, a blank whiteboard. Say, Torah, come write all over me. Come mold me and shape me. Engrave yourself on my heart. Form me into who I'm meant to be, a Ben Torah or a Bas Torah. Just like Eretz Midbar Lo Nevav Lo Nizra Me'olam was never worked. 
and it doesn't have any thing growing. And the Katskar elaborated on this greatly, but this is what this beautiful collection of the Katskar's Torah, Emes Ve'emunah, this is what he collects from it. These two interpretations, what does it mean we have to transform ourselves into a Midbar? Why is God speaking to Moshe specifically in the backdrop against the setting of the Midbar? Why is he invoking that setting as part of the critical message that he is communicating to motivate and inspire us to be a Midbar? Number one, step up, take responsibility, just like the only way you could survive. And number two, it's barren, it's empty. We have to make ourselves barren. We have to do a hard reset. Whatever virus is in our system, the virus maybe we've picked up in our youth, the virus by things we've been exposed to or taught, the virus of things that we watched or listened to, the virus of images or icons or ideas or ideals that we allow to penetrate, hard reboot, hard reset, get rid of it like a midbar, a blank slate. Torah, you tell me what to think. You tell me how to behave. You tell me what is the vision, Kaddish Baruch's blueprint for this, for this world. Okay. That is the Katskar. That is why Dafka, Bamidbar, Bamidbar Sinai. Why, that is why in the Midbar. Then he goes on, Ba'ol Moed. I referenced it before, but once I have the Katskar open, I might as well read it to you. Bamedrash Adshelo Omar Ol Moed, Diberimo Besneh. Until the Ol Moed was constructed, where did God speak to Moshe from? The Sneh. Remember the famous Sneh? that was on fire but not being consumed. Moshe walked by it, no one else noticed. Why did no one else notice? Kodesh Baruch Hu says to him, you know why I've chosen you? You know why you are the quintessential paradigmatic leader? You know why it's called Torus Moshe in perpetuity? Kisar Liros, you turned to see. Nobody else did. Everyone else kept walking. Do you know why they kept walking? Because they were texting. <laughs> they were looking down, they were scrolling, they were following everyone else's life forfeiting their own life because they were following in everyone else's Instagram and Facebook and checking it all out and texting. Our head is so down all the time. We don't see a Baruch is talking to us all the time. We don't hear him. We don't hear him because our head is down. So we don't pick up the signal because our head is down. Our head is down. So you have to lift your head to be able to pick up the signal. That bush that was on fire but not being consumed, anyone could have noticed it, but no one did. Moshe Rabbeinu was unique, Hisar Lir Os. So Hashem spoke to Moshe from a sneh, not only then, but always, until the Oa Moed was constructed, until the Shul was built, until the Mishkan, the Beis HaMikdash, Kodesh Baruch Hu spoke to Moshe from the sneh, B'Midyan, B'Sinai, V'Kemet Sha'amar Oa Moed, Amar Yafehu Atzniyas. Once the Oa Moed was built, the Medrash tells us, Hashem says, Tzniyas is beautiful. Shenemar V'Atzniya Leches Imelokecha. One is supposed to go, V'Atzniya, Hareyo Medaber Imo B'Oa Moed. So where did God speak to Moshe? Privately. Even though there's other venues, even though they were exposed, the Sneh was outdoors, and Midian was outdoors, and Sinai is outdoors. But God spoke to Moshe in a way that only Moshe could hear. Katsker says, you see, Kaddish Baruch Hu did not live stream every conversation with Moshe. He didn't post it all online for everyone to see and to like and to follow and to friend and to share. There are things that are meant still to be private. We're living in a generation and a time which there's overexposure. Overexposure. 
And there are things that are beautiful and worthy of sharing. There are things that we should maintain and keep private. We have to preserve and protect that sense of privacy. Tznias, Tznias, now is not the time to define it. It's a fascinating headlines podcast this past week about Tznias. But Tznias is not about prudishness. It's not about covering up. Tznias is about protecting. The Mishnah and Shabbos that uses that language of Matznian is talking about that which is the most valuable, that which we care about the most, we protect and we preserve. We don't expose and we don't share. There are things that we care about critically, they go in the safety deposit box, they go in a safe, they get locked up. When a person exposes and overexposes and gives access to anyone, it cheapens. All it does is cheapen everything. So the whole notion of Tznias is not only when it comes to our body, but it's a mentality, it's an attitude. It's to not be ostentatious. Just because we have or just because we can doesn't mean we should. A person who's brilliant with a brilliant mind doesn't need the whole world to know that. Doesn't have to flex and share their brilliance in every room. That's a breach of Tznias. It's a breach of Tznias. Why Hashem bestowed that brilliance upon them? Because just you have it doesn't mean you have to share it. It has to be reserved and preserved for the right setting, protected, because that's its value. When it's overshared and overexposed, it becomes cheap. And let's just skip right to the end of the parsha, the last pasuk in the parsha. If you skip to the very end of the parsha, because along these same lines, we never get to the end of the parsha. Big, it's a big deal. The very end of the parsha, page seven forty-six. Special precautions the Kohanim have to take. We'll come back to this. This is what you need to do in order to live. In the final Pasuk of our parasha, Perak Dalad, chapter 4, Pasuk Chaf. They shall not come and look at the Kodesh. Why? It's a capital crime. They'll be put to death. They'll be put to death. The Kohanim had been given the sole responsibility to protect these holy items, the holy kalim of the Mishkan, and yet they couldn't come in at will. They couldn't come in casually. They were forbidden to gaze upon them in an uncovered state. If they saw them while they were uncovered, they would die. They would die. Why this harsh punishment? The Rav Chumash writes, when the Aaron was removed, the Levim, the Israelim, were not to be present on the penalty of death. When the Aron was recovered by the Plishtim, people of Beit Shemesh died upon looking at the Aron. Hashem is the ultimate nister. Hashem is the ultimate hidden one. Pasuk says, Hashem descended in the cloud. When Moshe requested to see Hashem's countenance, Hashem refused. Whatever is holy must be concealed. So the definition of holiness is to protect and keep it private and to keep it covered and not to expose. Kajborah was tsanua. He didn't show his elbows and knees. Kaddish Baruch Hu was tzanua. He didn't uh, dress provocatively. What does it mean that Kaddish Baruch Hu was tzanua? It means in order for something to be holy, it needs to be private. The more casual an attitude, the more exposed that we keep something, the less holy it is. This concept, writes the Rav, applies to the human body as well. When we attempt to understand what motivated the Chashmonaim on the revolt against the Greeks, many invoke patriotism. However, patriotism is a relatively modern concept with its origin in the 18th century. The main reason for the rebellion was because Judaism hated nudity, and in Greece, nudity was an ideal. Roman and Greek clothing actually revealed more than was covered. We're living in Rome and Greece. Roman and Greek clothing revealed more than was covered. The Greeks looked upon the human body as aesthetically beautiful, and whatever is beautiful should be exposed. No reason for beauty to be hidden. 
Judaism, on the other hand, looked upon the human being, upon the body, as sacred. The laws of burial, including the preparation of the body for burial, as well as the laws of mourning, are nurtured by one principle. The human being, the human body, is holy. Humanity itself is a source of holiness, of sanctity. To Judaism, whatever is sacred should be concealed, hidden from public view. So the Greeks said, the human is aesthetically beautiful. Aesthetic beauty should be revealed and exposed. Judaism said the human being is holy. And that which is holy only stays holy, remains holy when it's hidden. This idea extends to how we must treat the terminally ill. A person may have lost all consciousness lying near death in an irreversible coma. Such an eventuality expresses the absurdity of human life. Yet we have a maxim, Kedushas aguf lopaka. The holiness of the body does not depart. If holiness is intrinsic to man, it can never be lost no matter the circumstance. The terminally ill comatose patient may have lost everything we associate with humanity. But intellect and consciousness are not the source of man's holiness. He does not lose his sanctity as a human being. So our whole attitude towards the end of life, the terminally ill, is influenced by this attitude. Listen to what he ends with. From the time I was young, we've shared this part before. I learned to restrain my feelings and not to demonstrate what was happening in my emotional world. My father would say that the holier and more intimate the feeling, the more it should be concealed. There's a hidden curtain that separates between one's interior and exterior. And this the Rav originally commented on the Pasuk and Shmos about the parochas, the dividing curtain between the Kodesh and the Kodesh HaKadoshim. There was a parochas, a curtain, that divided between the holy and the holy of holies. What location is more sanctified than the inner sanctum of one's emotional life? If all is going well and one's heart overflows with happiness, he should reveal the deep interior of his soul to Hashem, but not reveal it to others, lest a stranger profane his holy of holies. We have a Kodesh HaKadoshim. We have a holy of holies that are our inner thoughts. The moment that we share it, you know, not everything that we think needs to be posted. Not everything that we think needs a video. Not everything that we think needs a reel. There are things that are private, that are intimate. I would humbly submit that the enormous increase in crises and relationships and relationships that are failing is because the whole notion of intimacy, emotional intimacy, intellectual intimacy, even physical intimacy, is intimacy is the result of sharing something with someone that you don't share with everybody else. I'm confiding, I'm trusting, I'm investing. I have the trust in you that I'm willing to make myself vulnerable. I'm willing to expose myself, quite literally, in physical intimacy. And metaphorically, I'm exposed in emotional intimacy. I'm sharing with you a thought or an innermost feeling that I don't tell the world. I'm telling you about an experience or I'm sending you a picture of something that not everybody gets to see. But when you have a couple, when you have a marriage, when you have friendship, in life in general, when you share everything with everyone, what's happened with intimacy? There is no intimacy left. There's nothing left to build upon with intimacy. And we're seeing this enormous breakdown. We're seeing this enormous breakdown. So the Kotzker says, it's not just Bamidbar Sinai. Every drasha, every vort, everyone talks about Bamidbar. The book of Bamidbar, the Torah was given Bamidbar. But the Torah goes on to tell us, and the Kotzker says, because of Kodesh Baruch Hu, this is a private conversation. It's a private experience. Moshe didn't walk out of the Olmoed and then post and text uh, each time to his story, just met with Hashem again, flex in the Olmoed, listen to what he told me, check out this picture, the selfie I took, me and him, how cool I am. There are things that are tznias, that are tsanua. For there to be holiness, for there to be holiness, there has to be privacy. There has to be hiddenness. If there is no hiddenness, there is no holiness. There is no holiness. So tznias is not about covering up only physically. 
Tznis is about an attitude and mentality, and we're living in a very unsanua time. Not just because, like the Romans and the Greeks, there's more exposed and covered on the clothing these days, but emotionally, we're living in an unsanua time in terms of ostentatiousness too. But emotionally, the overexposure of people's innermost thoughts and experiences and feelings is creating an incredibly immodest and non-intimate world which people are struggling for that, for that intimacy. So that's a full circle from the beginning of the parsha to the end. Ba'oamoed is the tzniyas or the kotzker to loyavo at the end of the parsha. The Rav's comment that even the Kohanim, even those who are most acquainted, who are most comfortable and familiar with the holiness of the Mishkan and its kalim, they too were precluded. They too were prevented. You can't gaze. You can't stare. You can't touch when you're not doing service. You have to keep a sense of boundary, of intimacy, of hiddenness, of holiness, in order for it to be something which is elevated. Perak Aleph, Pasuk Beis, back to page 726, back to the beginning of the Parsha. What was the Lemur? So we know the background. It was in the Midbar, the Oamoid. We know the timing. It was the first of the second month in the second year. But what was the message? What did Hashem communicate? Take a census. It's time to take account of the entire Jewish people according to their families, their father's household, by the number of the names, every male according to their head count. A census. And of course, we've discussed this. You can't learn Parshas by Midbar without it. We've discussed this many times in the past. What seems to be a contradiction. Is it a name or a number? Bimispar Shemos. There's a contradiction between a name and a number. A name is specific. The individuality of the person, the uniqueness, the distinctiveness of them. A number is dehumanizing. A number is just a number. So which is it? Are you a name? Are you a number? And we've spoken about the elements of both. We strive to be both. On the one hand, a number. On the one hand, we have a willingness to simply be a soldier in God's army. I don't need to stand out. I don't need to be individual recognition. I don't need my uniqueness to shine. I'm just a soldier. I just show up and I do your bidding, Hashem. I'm just your soldier here in this world. I'm comfortable and complacent being a number. But on the other hand, a name. On the other hand, to say, no, I'm a unique expression of Hashem in this world. I have a unique mission and purpose of why I'm here. And that blend between the two is what we're striving to achieve. Rav Moshe says similarly in his Drash Moshe, Moshe Feinstein says that in this Pasuk you can learn the, the loftiness and the greatness and the potential and the capacity of every Jew. When the Torah talks about the census, the Torah talks about what is the number, what is the count of the Jewish people, what's the word that we use? Su. What does Su mean? To lift. How do we count? By lifting up. So that means that when you participated in the census, imagine, there's a knock at the door, the census taker comes, and doesn't just hand a form, or doesn't just start entering on their iPad, how many people live in this house, what are their ages, what's your average annual income, say, can I help you? I say, yes, my name is so-and-so. Say, why are you here? Say, I've come to lift you up. I've come to elevate you. Come to lift me up, elevate me. How will you do that? Because I want to take a census. Imagine the person who answers the door. Imagine in the process of that census, what, by being counted, 
you're elevated. This is also an enormous challenge. This is why it's called partial perspectives for our time, for today. They're partial perspectives for today because this is another challenge in our time. People feel invisible. They feel inconsequential. By the way, it highly correlates with everything being posted online. If you spend your life following the life of others, if all you're doing is scrolling and streaming to see how everyone else is living, you say they have all the fame, they have all the public eye, they have all the, everybody's watching and looking. Me, I'm invisible, I'm inconsequential, I don't matter. I don't have so many friends or followers. The world doesn't know who I am. I must be nothing. I must have no value. We're living in a time of unprecedented mental health challenges, unprecedented. And all the studies today show it high, highly correlates with the oversharing and the posting and the social media. Because people feel invisible, inconsequential. I don't make a difference. So Torah comes along and says, Su'u es Rosh B'nai Israel. You know how you lift somebody's head? By telling them, you count. You matter. You mean something. You make a difference. We don't measure a person's value or worth by how many friends or followers they have. We're here to make you feel counted. We're here to make you feel lifted. And Reb Moshe writes, When they knocked on Reb Moshe's door for the census, and they knocked on some Oisvar's door, they knocked on someone who's 80 or someone's 8, and it doesn't matter. Someone who's great and somebody who's small. All those who are eligible, obviously, for the census. Because every Jew, every Yid, every human is a Tzalem Elokim. We have an estimable potential and capacity. We are a manifestation and expression of Hashem in this world. We are unique. So lift your head. Stop hanging your head low. Stop carrying your head like it's so heavy. Stop looking down like you're worthless and invisible and you don't mean anything. Lift your head. Door to door, Moshe Rabbeinu, you'd pass in front of him and he'd say, you count and you count and you count. You're a name and you're a number. You're a soldier in the army of Hashem, but you have a name. No, what's your name? Who are you? Where are you from? Tell me about yourself. You count. You matter. The world is waiting for the difference that you and only you can make. Said Ramosha, it's not a coincidence that we read this parsha. We read Bamidbar right before Shavuos. You know why? Because many people come to the holiday of Shavuos and they say, Kabbalah Satorah, receiving the Torah? I can barely break my teeth on Rashi scripts. I barely know anything. Do you know my background? Do you know how limited my education is? I have ADD. I can't sit still. My memory, I don't remember what we said yesterday. So there's no room for me in Torah. There's no space for me. It doesn't matter if I learn. It doesn't make a difference if I observe or if I keep. Who am I? I'm a failure. Every time I try to live an inspired Torah life, I fail and flop right on my face. So why bother? What's the point? Says Ramosha, we read this right before Shavuos. Su es rosh kolada. Raise the head of all, of every member of the Jewish people. And how do we raise our head? We count. Take a census. Take a census. Every one of you passed before Moshe Rabbeinu and the Gedolei Yisrael of the time, and they'd say, you count, and you count, and you count. No, I'm going to count you by your number. You're an army. You're in the soldier, in the army. And tell me, what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? So we count. And that's why counting in Klai Yisrael is called Su'u, to lift. We lift the head of those who are counted. Rabbi Nachman, the Hilliger Rabbi Nachman is something beautiful to say about this too. Here we have another census. Even though we just counted those who left Egypt. 
Even though we were counting when we left Mitzrayim, Shem wanted to know, no, what are we working with here? How many do we have? How many will be traveling with us? How many kosher meals do we have to order? And counted after the horrific mistake of the Chet Egel. And now is another counting after the inauguration of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is up and running. The Mishkan was established. And Hashem says, how many? Let's lift the head. And Rashi says, why are we counting again? Why are we counting again? Because you count what you love. You count what you love. How many Eneklach? How many Eneklach? How many grandchildren? Great-grandchildren? You count. They're precious. You love. You count. You review. Some people count their money over and over and over again. They have less to count these days. We need the stock market to go back up. Some people count their Bitcoin. It doesn't take them long these days. But people count. People count how many RBIs. How many RBIs Aaron Judge? How many home runs he has? What he's on pace to get? People count what they love. What does HaKadosh Baruch Hu love? Us. Sometimes we count even though we know. But the process of counting, the exercise of counting, is in itself an expression of love. Hashem knows the answer to the census. Hashem is infinite, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-being. He can just give the number to Moshe. Why do we have to go through the exercise? Because Hashem loves us and He wants us to love one another, to count one another, and to remember that we count. We count what we love. So why is it important what wonders of Nachman? Few more Jews, few less Jews. What do we need an exact number? We need an exact number? I get all the time. How many members in BRS? How many members in your shul? Eh, give or take, plus or minus. Do we have to give the exact number each time I got to go in shul cloud and look up how many members in good standing today? How many have paid? Members, associate members, friends of BRS, BRS Global, how do you calculate? So what does it matter? Just give, you know, more or less, plus or minus. Round it out. Does it really matter? Says Reb Nachman, you can only ask that question. It's like saying, how many children do you have? I don't know, plus or minus seven. Around, give or take, give or take a few. Every child is precious. Each one is a gift from above, never to be taken for granted. What a bracha in life. Because of Nachman, Rav Nachman writes in the Kutei Moran, Every Jew is unique. Every Jew is distinct. Every Jew is an individual. The world never saw anyone like him or her till he came here or she came here. And the world never again will have someone like them. We should tell him, God is infinite. And the way he can manifest himself or express himself are infinite possibility. And we human beings are each a unique expression of him. Unique expression. Our job, our mission, like we've said many times, our job, our mission is, why am I here? What was the world waiting for me to contribute? And what can I and I alone give that no one else can? That if I don't do it, the world will be bereft. It'll be void. It'll be absent. What I meant to do, who I meant to be, the difference I meant to make. And we need to know that there is no competition and there is no comparison. And whoever I meant to be, whatever difference I meant to make, nobody could take that away. Nobody could do it instead. 
איש שאין יכול לבד על קיומה של נקודה טובה הזאת, וגם לא יכול לעשות בדיוק כמוה. Nobody can do it exactly the way I do. We're each unique, we're each distinct, the world is waiting for us, and that's why Hashem counts us. That's why He counts us. Just to skip here to the end, because a lot more to cover. So Rab Nachman said, Sichos Aran, Simen Tzadi Aleph. Sheskula lahasmada b'Torah, lo ledaber al Yehudi acher. You know what a skula is to learn? We have all kinds of skulas and shortcuts that people subscribe to. A little shlislochala, a little red bendel, a little this, a little pittamaktoris from a klaf, a little... Everybody has all their schools and shortcuts and superstitions. Rebbe Reb Nachman said, you know what the school is to learn, Bahasmada? You want to break through and succeed in your learning? You want to remember your Torah? You want to be successful in learning? You know what the answer is? Never speak negatively about another Jew. Okay, it's virtuous, righteous. It's a very nice idea. It's a great goal to set. Don't speak negatively of another Jew. What does that have to do with learning Torah? What does that have to do with learning Torah? Listen to this teaching by Rav Nachman. We have a tradition that there's 600,000 letters in the Torah that correspond with the 600,000 Jewish souls. When you speak negatively of a fellow Jew, you have erased their letter from your Torah. So if every, means every Jew is a letter in the Torah. That Torah, that is the word of Hashem, the diary of Hashem, that Torah that is the blueprint for creation of Hashem, every Yid, every Jew is a letter in that Torah. That's why we have a minig. When we lift the Torah, Hagba, you're supposed to look at the Torah. There's no source for pointing, but there is a source for bending. And there's a tradition that's brought down by great Kabbalists to find your letter in the Torah. You're supposed to not look at the back of the Torah. You're supposed to bow. Bezos Torah, when you can see the actual text of the Torah and find your letter. If there's a minute to point to point, your pinky, your forefinger, whatever you want to ping, point with, and find your letter and say, that's me. There's room in the Torah for me. I matter. I make a difference in Torah in this world. I have space in Torah. Torah welcomes me. Torah makes me feel comfortable. Torah invites every Jew, no matter how great, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how perfect or imperfect, there's a room in the Torah for me, for my letter. Every Monday, Thursday, and Shabbos, during Hagbah, when we see our letter in that Torah, it reminds us and it strengthens us and it gives us chizuk that the Torah speaks to me and the Torah welcomes me and makes space for me and that I have something to contribute in Torah. But what happens, says Rab Nachman, if you speak about a fellow Jew, you know what you've done, you've erased their letter from your Torah. So what happens when you learn Torah? It's an incomplete learning. Your Torah's puzzle. Can you read from a Torah that's missing a letter? If a letter is missing, if a letter is incomplete, the Torah's puzzle. So when I speak of a fellow Jew and I erase their letter, I've made my Torah puzzle. So my learning now is corrupt. And that's why a school of learning, you want a smada in Torah? Then never speak negatively of another Jew. Keep your Torah kosher. Keep all their 600,000 letters in. Give every Jew space in your world, in your life. Let them realize they have a room in the Torah. Don't erase their letter, or else you make the whole Torah puzzle. So that's why the census matters. That's why the census is Urosh, Reb Moshe, we're lifting the head. Reb Nachman, we don't say give or take, round it out, but every Yid, every Jew, every Jew matters, every Jew makes a difference. Perak Aleph Pasuk Yud. Whom did we not count? Perak Aleph Pasuk Yud. Vahayuli Halavim. 
Moving along. The Leviim were not included in the census, which is not Pasuk Yud. Where is Pasuk Yud? Where is Valer Leviim? Not Pasuk Vav. I got the wrong Pasuk here, but I'll tell you the Dvar Torah anyway. You'll have to take my word that there's a Pasuk. Says the Medrash, Amid Baraba. Medrash says something astounding. Medrash is something incredible. The Medrash says, Kodesh Baruch puts his eye, the Levim are not counted among everybody else. Levim have their own independent private census. They are not included with the other tribes, with the other members of Kala Yisrael. Why not? Why aren't they included? What did the Levim not participate in? Chet The Levim sat it out. They watched from afar. They said, this is a mistake. This is a bad idea. Don't do this. You've miscalculated. You miscalculated when Moshe is going to return, and you've miscalculated what you're doing by now building this eagle. Don't do it. It's a big, big mistake. It's a big, big mistake. So the Medrash says, Kodesh Baruch says, my eyes, you know who I look at? You know who I look to? You know who I admire? You know who I count on? You know who I count and cherish? Shevet Levi. And not all of Jewish people. You know why? They were trustworthy. Because they were trustworthy and because they came through. They were trustworthy and they came through. When the rest of you failed me, when you saw me being distorted, when you saw a violation of Chil Hashem, you sat by and you participated. But the Levim, they protested, they refused. The great Rabbi Yeruchim Levavitz, the Mashkiach of Mir, is Das Chochma Umusr. He writes, Eich lo tutal aleinu eima v'fachad. How is it possible not to be overwhelmed with eima v'fachad, with fear? Belamdeinu parshios el b'midbar v'nasa, when you learn these two parshios. Shekla Yisrael ibdu la'adul olmei olamem v'schusam v'sasek b'avod z'hakodesh. The Bechor, the firstborn, were replaced with the Levim. Really, the service in the Beis HaMikdash was supposed to be done by the firstborn of every family. The Bechor had the position of distinction. But they were replaced, they were fired. And they were replaced by the Levim. And the Levim instead got that great position, that great job, that great mission. Why? Because they protested. Because they stood up. When Hashem's name was being desecrated, they weren't passive and they didn't participate, but they protested. Rabbi Yerucham would read these parshas and they'd say, Nebuch, woe unto us. Look what we lost out on. Look who we could have been. Look at what we could have done. Look at the position we could have had. Elamai, what happened? We failed. We failed. So Shevet Levi are called the Ne'emane Aretz. They are the trustworthy. They are the ones that Baruch Hu can trust. They're the ones he show up. And that's what this parasha challenges us to ask ourselves. Are we in Hashem's inner cabinet? Can He rely on us? Can He trust us? Will we show up? We're also living in a world where there are chayta eagles all around us. There are distortions of Hashem's name. There are chil Hashem, desecrations of Hashem's name. There are violations of Hashem's blueprint for this world. So who are we like? Those who passively watch? Those who participate? Or are we like Shevet Levi that we're willing to protest? That we're willing to protest? We're learning this now on Wednesday mornings in Mesil Hashem, the Ramchal, in the description of the Midah of Chassid, of Chassidus. He says to be a Chassid of Hashem is o'avei Hashem sinura. Are you willing to be a kanoi for Hashem? You have to be very careful. You can't just be a zealot. 
very, very dangerous. You have to do it with the tremendous, tremendous supervision and support of Gedola Yisrael. You can't just be a kanoi. But minimally, you have to be disturbed on his behalf. The Ramchal there writes, imagine you have a good friend who's being beaten. You have a good friend who's being cursed at. A friend who's being bullied. You just stand there and watch. You don't intervene and interfere. You don't step up, step in and do something. You're obviously not a good friend. If you're a good friend, you couldn't tolerate. If you're a good friend, you do something. So if you're a good friend to Kaddish Baruch Hu, if we care and love the Ribbon Shalom, then we can't watch passively. We have to step up and step in. We have to care and we have to make a difference. And that's what the Medrash describes. The rest, you're good. But where are my Leviim? Where are my Leviim? Who in that moment, that challenging moment, that crisis, they didn't fail, but they stood up and they passed the test and they were there for me. Let's move on to Perik Bey's, Pasig Bey's. So now we have the detailed census and then move over to the next chapter. Page 732. Children of the Jewish people shall encamp each by his banner according to the insignia of their father's household at a distance surrounding the tent of the meeting shall they encamp. Here we get to the camping. We were more like glamping. I don't think we were roughing it entirely. Were we roughing it entirely in the uh, midbar? But Kirsh Baruch came, and it was not open seating. Again, also, we've learned Parshat from midbar many times. We had the privilege of discussing this, but we're offering some new insights today. It was not Southwest Airlines. I hate Southwest Airlines. I hate Southwest. I need to know where I'm sitting. Am I going to have an aisle, a window, leg room? I'd like to know who I'm sitting next to. Southwest Airlines? I can't start Southwest Airlines. No seat assignment. Okay, the bags. I'd rather know where I'm sitting. I'd like to know where I'm sitting. So the Jewish people were giving seating assignments. It was not Southwest Airlines. They were told by their tribe exactly where they were positioned, where they were meant to encamp, where they were meant to be. When we discussed this previously, we saw a beautiful piece by Rabbi Rocham, by Rabbi Dessler, about the notion of Seder, of order. The value of order in our lives of punctuality, of order, of organization. We can't be haphazard. You don't just figure it out, but order. This is the parsha of order. They each had their own logo, their own insignia, their own flag. We were meant to camp, be positioned where we were meant to be, and we didn't violate those boundaries. We kept that formation, and we camped, and we traveled in that formation, because that formation was from above. It was divine. It made a difference, and it mattered, and it mattered. The Medrashir tells us something else. It's a beautiful medrash. And the medrash here says that what happened? Kaddish Baruch Hu showed a tremendous affection. Kaddish Baruch Hu showed a tremendous love. Our shir is being hacked online as we speak, so I'm trying to delete that. A chiba gedola, a great chiba that Kaddish Baruch Hu showed, that he gave these flags, he gave these insignias. Like whom? Jewish people were jealous of the angels, the Malachi Asharis. The Malachi Asharis felt recognized, they felt visible. 
And here we're continuing the theme that we began with of Nasas Rosh Kodas Bani Yisrael, that we are lifting the heads of every member of the Jewish people. How? By telling them they matter, they make a difference, and they count. And one of the ways that we feel we make a difference and we matter is that we don't blend together. We're not a bunch of penguins dressed in tuxedos at a wedding that are all wearing the same outfit, but everybody had their own color tie. Everybody had their own logo, their own insignia. Everyone had their own individuality and in their own expression. This was the Chiba, Rabbi Rucham says. Jewish people were jealous of the angels because every angel had a name and every angel had a mission and every angel had a purpose. So Klai Yisrael said, we too don't want to blend together. Don't put me in a box. Don't make us look or dress or act all the same. We each have our own personality and our own character. We each have our own assets and skills and talents and our own liabilities. So because Klai Yisrael had expressed that envy of the angels and wanted to each be unique and distinct as well, Kodesh Baruch Hu said, I'll tell you what I'm going to give you, socks. It's a big thing now, even among the yeshivish, they were black and white, but socks, silly socks. That's how you distinguish yourself. The different funny, different colored socks. Shabbat's answer was, I'm going to give you your own logo. I'm going to give you your own insignia. I'm going to give you your own sign. You will know the banner that you're fighting under. This was their aim, their goal. So how did this answer, though? How did this answer? They were jealous of the angels. They wanted their individuality. Akash Baruch gave them their logo, and now they were satisfied. That took care of the tension. That took care of the competition, the machlokas between them. Why weren't they still envious of one another? So you know what the answer is, says Rav Yorcham. What do you see from here? That when you discover who you're meant to be, then you're confident and capable and you're no longer competing with whoever someone else is. When someone is trying to be or compete or compare to somebody else, it means they're not confident in who they're meant to be. But the moment you have your logo, your insignia, your banner, your bumper sticker, the moment that you have your logo, the moment that you have you know who you're supposed to be, then you no longer need to care about who someone else is. You care about them because you love them. Fellow member of the family, fellow member of Kala Yisrael. But you're not competing or comparing. The people who are constantly trying to measure up to others, the people who are jealous or envious of others, I want that job. I want that spotlight. I want that position. I want that role. The people who are acting in that way, why? It's because they're not confident or comfortable in who they are. So that was really what he was answering them. Like the angels, I'm giving you your each logo means I'm assigning you your each mission. I'm telling you who you're meant to be and how you're meant to live. And when you know that and you can lean into that and you can fully embrace that and you can pursue that, then you'll no longer need to look around. You'll never, no longer need to measure up. You'll no longer need to compete and compare. That's what the mission of us Parakimel. Chaviv Adam Shenivar B'Tselem. The Mishnah says, Chaviv HaKadosh Baruch Hu made us so precious, so beloved, that we were created in His image. It seems very redundant, and that's what everybody asks on this Mishnah. This Mishnah in the third paragraph of Avos. Precious, beloved is man, all of humanity. The Pharisee Israel here, by the way, writes, does it say Chavav Yisrael? No. Is it that only Jews have a Tzalem Elohim? But by the Goyim, People use that term so disparagingly. By the non-Jews, are non-Jews who all human beings have a Tzalem Elohim or only Jews? So Tzalem Elohim, the Mishnah writes, note it says, Chaviv Adam. 
doesn't say Chav of Yisrael. It doesn't say by the Helege Yidin they're built with a Tzalem Elokim. By the Goyim they're a bunch of behemoths. Mishnah does not say that. It says Chav of Adam. That all human beings are created in the image of God. All human beings are expressions and manifestations of God in this world. And in that comment on Avos, the great Teferis Yisrael writes, and he starts to quote, all these non-Jewish brilliant people who made contributions that benefited the entire world, including for Jews, in medicine, and in technology, and astronomy, and science. He lists all these people. Chaviv Adam, not Chaviv Yisrael. But anyway, the question begs itself, why the redundancy and repetitiveness? Chaviv Adam shenivra b'tzalem, chiba yeseru nodas lo shenivra b'tzalem, shenemar ki b'tzalem okim asasa Adam. Man was created incredibly in the image of God, and there was another chiba, another affection that man was told he was created in the image. So why the redundancy? Now we understand. In addition to the very fact that we were created in the image of God, meaning unique and distinct and individually, there's another layer of affection that one thing is to be unique and distinct. Another is to merit to know our uniqueness and our distinctiveness. To know that every human being is different and distinct, we each have a unique mission and purpose, that's incredible. But to discover what it is, that's a whole other level. And that's why the Mishnah is not redundant. The first layer, the first level, is just know that a Kurdish Baruch Hu did not make any two people the same. Each is a unique manifestation each is a unique expression of godliness in this world. Know that. Know that you're precious. You're chaviv. Because everyone is a unique manifestation at Selim Elokim in the image of God. But there's another. Chiba Yeseira Nodaslo. There's another layer. And what is that? To know what your individuality is. What's your mission? What's your purpose? Why are you here? Why are you here? Was it Mark Twain who said the two most important days in a person's life are the day that they're born and the day they discover why? two most important days in a person's life are the day they're born and the day they discover why. That's what this Mishnah means. Chav Adam Shenever B'Tselem is the day you're born. Chiba Yaseir No Da'aslo is the day that you discover why. The day you discover why. And that's the significance of Ish Al Diglo. Each of us having our own sign, our own signia, our own logo. What we wanted like the Malachim and what the nations were jealous of was our understanding, our mission, our purpose. Because once you have once you can, you don't have to look around. You don't have to compete or compare. You could simply live your life with drive and ambition to pursue uniquely who you're meant to be. Who you're meant to be. And there's nothing more gratifying. Perikimel, flying here. Moving right along. Perikimel, Pasuk Aleph. Ela told us, Aaron and Moshe, Moshe bar Sinai. These are the children, the progeny of Aaron and Moshe. On the day Hashem spoke with Moshe at Har Sinai. Be'elishmos b'nei Aaron. We just introduced it by saying these are the children of who? We introduced it by saying these are the children of Aaron and Moshe. And then we list the children of Aaron. What happened? Why do we say these are the children of Aaron and Moshe only to list the children only of Aaron? What happened to the children of Moshe? Zakhtar Ashi. Comes along Rashi and says, Eino maskar l'b'nei Aaron. V'nikru told us Moshe, the children of Aaron are called the children of Moshe. Why? Shalamdan Torah. He taught them Torah. 
Malamed, what do you see from here? Shekola Malamed is Ben Chaveru Torah. Malalav Akasav Ki'ilu Yoldo. If you teach your friend's child Torah, you have given birth to them. They are born to you. You've given birth to them. Why? Because a person's physical, genetic, biological parents, they give them life in this world. But a person who teaches Torah gives us life in the world to come, in the next world. Biological parents give us physical life in this physical, temporary world. But those who teach us Torah, they give us immortality. They give us life forever. They give us life and they give us world forever. Why does it say ki'ilu? It's as if he gave birth. It's as if he gave birth. So Rav Dessler quotes, the altar of Kelm, It doesn't mean that he didn't really give birth. It's only as if. The truth is, giving birth spiritually is more real than giving birth physically. It's even more real. So we don't mean it's as if. A person who taught us Torah, who gave us our soul back, who lights it on fire, who gives us eternity, immortality, has actually given birth to us. So why does it say ki'ilu? Why does it say ki'ilu? Chazal used the term ki'ilu, said the altar of Kelm. Really, the ki'ilu is in the other direction. The ki'ilu is that whoever gave birth to you physically is only ki'ilu giving birth. The greatest birth, the ultimate birth, the most authentic birth, the most lasting birth, the most real birth is the birth of those who give us the world to come. And that's what the Gemara Bamatziah teaches in Lama Gimel. What happens? Avedis Avivavedis Rabbo. Your father and your Rebbe both lost an item. Whose do you go find first? Your father and your Rebbe each ask you for a glass of water. Whom do you bring a water to first? You're having your Rebbe over for dinner with your father and time to bring a bowl of soup. Who do you serve first? Says the Gemara Avedis Rabbo Kodemus. Because you give your Rebbe first, and you save your Rebbe first, and you return your Rebbe's lost item first. Why? Because your father gave you life in this world, but your Rebbe gave you life in the world to come. Moravar of Shechter tells a story. He once went to a Talmud's home, and the mother greeted him at the door, yelling at him, Is it true, Rabbi Shechter, that if I was drowning and you were drowning, my son would have to save you first? Is that what you taught him? So Shechter says he told her, and he corrected her, that this is a misnomer. What is the Gemara talking about? You have a Rebbe and a father. Is that the Rebbe teaches you independent of the father. But if the father pays the tuition for you to have a Rebbe, then you save your father first. Because your father is the one who gave you that immortality by getting you that Rebbe. So when your father puts you through yeshiva, pays for you to keep learning in kolol, the father pays for you to have that Rebbe, the father pays for that life, then you save your father first. You save the father first. So this Gemara is true, but it's true in a case of a Rebbe who stepped in independent of the father. The father was absentee in teaching Torah and the Rebbe taught Torah. So then the Rebbe takes on the role of the spiritual father who becomes a priority. But if the parents paid for the Rebbe for the education, then it's the halacha, Rav Shechter said. You got to save the parent over the Rebbe. So he was allowed to stay there for Shabbos. Uh, the mother let him. The mother let him come in. So you see, that's the that is the halacha. That is the uh, halacha. So the ki'ilu is in the other direction. The real birth is the one who gives us our soul, who gives us immortality, who helps us understand not only the day we're born, in the words of Mark Twain, 
Basically, our parents are responsible for the day we're born. Our teachers are responsible for helping us figure out why. And the helping us figure out why is holier and higher because that gives us immortality than even the day that we first come here, even the day that we are, that we are born. Rav Shechter in his uh, Sefer and Chumash, it came out the second volume. Rav Shechter in the parasha, but in the first volume, Eila told us Aaron and Moshe quotes this as well. Another example of the existence of a father-son relationship, which is not biologically based, is the opinion in the Rishami and Bikurim. A convert presenting his Bikurim in the Beis Amikdash can say, Arami Ovid Avi. Can a convert say, Avoseinu, my forefathers? Shulchan Aruch Paskins, according to the opinion that a gear, a convert, can benching say, that you have given to our forefathers as a heritage. How can the convert say that? They don't biologically share the same forefathers. How can they say, From the time that Avram's name was changed to Avraham, I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. Avram was the founding father of the Jewish nation. It includes all future converts as well. And therefore, the convert can include Avoseinu, my forefathers, because spiritually they share the same forefather. They are the spiritual progeny of the same ancestors, and therefore they can legitimately and accurately say forefathers. The Chachma Shlomo, Paskin Zevan Ezer, that a couple unable to physically bear children can partially fulfill the mitzvah period of Arivia if they adopt a boy or girl and raise them with Torah values. Now, there are people struggling, it's among the most painful things that exist. One of the most painful things that exist are those struggling with infertility. In fact, you know, yesterday there's a minute to recite the Tfilas Ashla. Erev Rosh Chodesh Sivan, if one more person sent me a text or email or an alert reminding me to say the Tfilah of the Shla on Erev Rosh Chodesh Sivan, Baruch Hashem, what a beautiful Mika Am we're all reminding each other. But could you imagine what it's like to not have children and be getting the alerts and the reminders and the emails and the text? Don't forget to say this Tfilah for your children. If you have children, it's a beautiful thing to get that reminder to stop and pause and say the tefillah. But could you imagine the salt in the wound or the pain of the person? Who doesn't have children but needs to be reminded that art scroll made for free. It's beautiful of art scroll. I'm not ranking an art scroll, but you need to be reminded. Here's the text. Here's the beauty of it. I just realized it last night. We have to, we have to qualify. We don't have to stop talking about having children. People who have children have done nothing wrong. We don't have to feel bad or apologize or hide it, but we do have to qualify and we have to be, to be careful. So when we share the tefillah sashla, we should say, and what about the single person, by the way, who says at least the couple who don't have children have each other to feel terrible and miserable they don't have children. The single person says, I'm all alone. I don't have children and I don't even have to share that with anyone that I don't have children. So we can't be callous. We have to be sensitive and careful when it comes to these issues. But the Chachma Shlomo says, that even those who don't have biological children can fulfill the mitzvah puru How? By adopting, or by supporting, by donating, by contributing to Jewish education, by caring, by running youth events, by inspiring young people. That's a fulfillment. You see that from our parsha. Ela told us, Aaron and Moshe, they're Moshe's children, even though they're not his biological children, but because he taught them Torah, ki'ilu yoldo, and that ki'ilu is even greater. That's why when the Gemara says, we'll be asked a series of questions when we get upstairs, the Gemara and Shabbos says, and one of the questions will be asked is, Asakta Bepiri Varivya. The Marsha there points out, it doesn't say, did you fulfill the mitzvah Piri Varivya? That's not in our power. How many people desperately want to fulfill Puruvu? They want to have children, but they can't. They can't. So we're not asked, did you fulfill Puruvu? We're asked, Asakta. 
did you occupy yourself with Puruvu? The Marashad there says along the lines of the Chachma Shlomo here, that you can fulfill Puruvu by inspiring children, and by sponsoring children, and by contributing to children, and by strengthening children, by teaching children, by being role models and examples to children. And they may not be your biological children, but the Ki'ilu, going backwards, the Ki'ilu, of Dessler's Ki'ilu, the author of Kelm's Ki'ilu, that when you inspire children and you give them immortality through religious inspiration, you've given greater birth to them than their own biological parents, than biological parents, that we have their capacity as well in that, in that way. I had 10 more things I wanted to tell you. Gotta make this an hour and a half. Oh, I had a great Rav Druk that we didn't get to last year that I saved for this year. But now I'll have to save for next year. Such a great Rav Druk. I'll leave you with the question. We have the census. Torah references it again. So Rashi tells us that Moshe says to Kodesh Baruch Hu, how am I going to count the children? What am I going to enter the tent with the nursing mothers and a breach of Tzniyas? How am I going to count the young children? I don't belong in the tent in the privacy of people's homes. They're boundaries. So what did HaKadosh Baruch Hu say? You do yours, and don't worry, I'll take care of it. So Moshe Rabbeinu went tent to tent, and he stayed outside, he stayed outdoors, and a heavenly voice went out and said, there's three kids in here, there's two kids in here, there's five kids in here, there's one kid in here. So if Druk wonders, if Moshe wasn't going to go into the tent and do the count himself, if there was a miracle of a heavenly voice that would proclaim exactly how many children, then why do you have to bother going? Couldn't he just go to the base medrash? HaKadosh Baruch Hu would tell him, here's the census of the children. Here's the final count of the children. Sounds incredibly inefficient and unproductive. Why did Moshe bother going if the count was going to be a miracle from above anyway? Try to remember this question until next year. Until next time. Tomorrow morning, we have 10 minutes of meeting with Sharm, living with Amuna, and tomorrow night, behind the bima with Rabbi Beryl Wine. We'll get ready for the holiday of Shavuos with the great Rabbi Wine. Take us on a little journey through history and the transmission of Torah. Looking forward to a great conversation with him. Till next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy.